Welcome, everyone, to the third episode of the Ribbon Book Club, a Dear America podcast, hosted by me, Jen Voss. And myself, Kate Reed. We have finished recapping the first book in the series, which is Journey to the New World, The Diary of Remember Patience Whipple. Uh, we've discussed in great length and detail uh, the contents of that book. And now we've come to the third act of our podcast where we talk to another person and you don't have to just listen to our voices. Uh, <laughs> and so you can talk to someone who has some real knowledge uh, and and know that we're not just all making it up. Uh, some of it we've made up, but not all of it. Uh, so this week we have a huge get. Uh, we have Tom Bagley, who is the director of collections and special projects at Plymouth Patuxet Museum, which is a very, very cool museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, it is a living history museum where you can go and you can just be surrounded and immersed in uh, the atmosphere of the Plymouth settle settlement, uh, which uh, someone like Mem would have been living in. And you can meet interpreters who will talk to you all about what life was like back then. And highly can, trained interpreters. Highly nice. trained. And you can also uh, speak with um, Native American interpreters who will tell you about um, indigenous life at that time as well. Uh, so they do a lot of good work. Um, it's a great museum. I can vouch for it personally. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, and we had a great conversation with Tom, um, just to give you some more information about him. Uh, he has, as, along with being the director of collections there, he has completed a number of publication projects during um, his time there, including a facsimile of William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation, which I believe is something that he wrote. <laughs> yeah, one of the many, many things that he wrote. Yeah, so, and his own research focuses on how the story of the 17th century Plymouth colony has been represented in children's literature throughout the centuries. So that this was... An absolutely yeah. ideal person. I could not imagine a better guest for this first episode. Um, so we had a great talk with him all about the history and all about uh, children's literature in general. Um, and uh, we he had some great book recommendations, which we will post. And uh, yeah, without further ado... We'll just shoot it on over to pass us in our conversation with Tom Begley. All right, so we are joined by our very first guest, uh, Tom Begley, who is the Director of Collections and Special Projects at Plymouth Patuxet. Uh, Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, if you want to start with like how you got interested in history and then your general career path. How did you get here? Sure, yeah. I mean, for me, getting the way I got interested in history was reading. Uh, I remember from like elementary school reading biographies, of, you know, interesting athletes, presidents, anything like that. Uh, that was, I can, when I think back on, I'm like, that's how I got into this field was just consuming all this nonfiction as like a little kid. Mm. Um, and then over time, it just sort of, it's the history is sort of stuck with me. So when it came time to do my own studying, I studied history in undergraduate and had the opportunity to do an internship here at Plymouth Patuxent Museums um, in the library and collection space. And the curator at the time um, took a chance on me by asking me to help uh, catalog all the books in the library. And 
she got me hooked. And so I remember being like, oh, I want to come back there. I want to go back there. I want to do that work. I want to be in museums. But you know how life as an intern can take you in a different direction. And I ended up doing academic publishing, but once again, still in books. And um, eventually found my way back here. I've now been at Plymouth Patuxent Museums for eight years and um, have been in this role as the director of collections, going kind of coming full circle uh, in about last year or so. Um, so now I get to work in the same space where my little intern desk was um, all those years ago. So it's kind of cool. Uh, you get to come cool full circle. Oh, that's so yeah. great. Oh, man. And that's so interesting that you came. Well, I mean, interesting. It's, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of us kind of came to history through books in our childhood. I certainly, I, you know, this book series that we're reading is one of the main reasons why I got into history and then in mm. museums. So it's like, yeah, it's just so the things that you take in as a kid are, can have a huge impact on well, you. Well, and authors can be oh, so yeah. incredibly compelling and historical stories are compelling as well because we all want to know how we got to the place where we are now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a very common, very human wondering uh, is to think about the past and consider its implications for the future. Uh, and so we get a lot out of that. And I think that's so cool. Um, so what can you tell us about Plymouth Patuxent and what you do there? Sure. So we are the museum of 17th century New England, essentially. And our what we're famous for is living history model. We have four main exhibits, the 17th century English village, the historic Patuxent home site, Mayflower 2, and the Plymouth Gristmill. All that are based around a living history style of presentation. Um, so you can see actors in the English village portraying a day in the life of 1627 Plymouth Colony. You can visit uh, staff on the home site who are working around a fire in uh, Nushwitu, a traditional Wampanoag house. Um, Mayflower, too, you understand how the sailing um, in the 17th century worked and the conditions in which some of the pilgrim pass uh, voyage happened. And at the gristmill, you can, um, my favorite part is when they're grinding, you can feel this entire building rumble, a, a reproduction of a 1636 mill. Um, so oh, it's, I still it's, want to it's, go. It's, <laughs> Forgive it, me, I'm say, sorry. You know, it's history come to life, you know, for what we do here. Um, that's our main model here. It's always been for, this is our 75th year right now. Um, so we've been around for a while and uh, it's it's quite, a, it's amazing uh, for me. Um, as someone who came into this history from books and someone who would have probably rather read a text panel than like engage with another, like an actor, you know, in a, in a funny, <laughs> funny voice. <laughs> Um, How's that connect for you, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> I, I relate it, deeply. <laughs> all right, cool. And uh, we uh, no, but it's a. I've it's been able to see all that how this museum balances all those different learning styles and interest levels, so that everybody who visits this museum has a path into the history mm. that they can find for themselves and explore to whatever depth they choose. Um, so that's kind of the really interesting thing that we do here at this museum. There's no one way to visit. And um, there's multiple ways to find out all the different important parts of the story. That's wonderful. Can I ask you about your paper collection? Um, I imagine that it's quite extensive because one of the things that I've been picking up from the books I've been reading about the Pilgrims, which includes The Wordy Shipmates by Sarah Vowell mm. and Mayflower by Nathaniel Philbrick, 
They wrote a lot. They were very prolific mm. writers. Do you guys have a large collection of original Pilgrim writings? Mm. Uh, Pilgrim Museums does not. Um, so there are other historical organizations, in particularly in Plymouth and Massachusetts, uh, that hold all those original documents. So um, this Massachusetts uh, State Library, for example, has Governor William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation, a handwritten history of the first like 40 years or so of the colony. Yeah. Um, the Plymouth County Registry of Deeds has all of the original court records going back to the 1620s. Um, Pilgrim Hall Museum has some of the earliest uh, writings from the colony. Uh, they're a society that's been around for 100, oh, oh, 200 years now. Um, and so we don't have a lot of original materials, but to your point, um, there's a lot of writing that we can lean on when we think about and study the history. Um, I like to joke though, that or point out that they wrote a lot, but not enough. And, um, <laughs> So it's like uh, William Bradford made this uh, map of who was living on the street in Plymouth Colony in like 1621. He only wrote down the names for one half the street. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> there aren't that many people just finished the map on the other side of the street. Like, Dang how Bradford, long would it have taken? Attention. Just yeah. finish the job. <laughs> so uh, that's very indicative yeah. of like what we have to work with when it comes to original materials. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of it, but not all of it. Hmm. That's really like, OK, so I went to Plymouth when I was like, I want to say 12 or something. So that was like one of my first living history museum experiences. And I joke about being, you know, an indoor introvert kid, but like that was life changing. And I was like my f to date, one of my favorite museum experiences uh, because it had such an immersive um, experiential like aspect to it. And like, I was, you know, timid about talking to people, but I was just so fascinated at the level of research that went into, you know, the dedication of the interpreters to really like going all in. Because they do, do they still do first person interpretation? Yes, in the okay. English village, it's still yep, first person. Yeah, so you would walk into like a little cottage or whatever, and they'd be working, and they would they would talk to you, but they would like refuse to acknowledge that it is the twenty first yeah. century. And yeah. So they would like ask me like, "Oh, do you like to cook?" You know, and I was like, "Yeah, what do I? What do you like to cook?" Oh, spaghetti, and and they're like, "What's that?" And so, <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, it was a fascinating experience, and it kind of you know tying back to the book that is written, you know, in a first person diary, you know, it kind of reminds me of like putting yourself into that first person mindset mm. of what it's like to actually live here instead of just, you know, a detached, uh, you know, this is what it was like way back then. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was how many references the author made to artifacts that I would imagine she saw in a museum. For example, at one point in time, she references a basket made by the indigenous people, and mm. it's covered in crab shells, like it's made of crab shells. And I've never seen a basket like that. Uh, so I was hoping that there might be an actual artifact to support that. Uh, but you could see that the book is well-researched in other places. Mm -hmm. The author mm -hmm. agrees with the two other authors that I'm reading. Um, so what are some of the myths and misconceptions that people believe about Plymouth and especially the story of the first Thanksgiving? Sure. Um, well, to start with the Pilgrim story in general, I think one of the things is uh, some of the 
So I guess you both know this very, very well is it's a, it's a nuance, right? It's complicated. There's so many more layers to a story than what we initially are told, or we learned from that earliest age. Right. And I think what this book actually does a pretty good job of talking a bit about are the many people who were on Mayflower, right? Um, we know that the pilgrims, as they come to be known later on, uh, came to have an opportunity to worship uh, the way they saw fit, to find a better life for themselves and their families, um, but mostly to escape uh, pers- religious persecution back in England. And so, but when we get into it, it was only about half the passengers on Mayflower were of that persuasion. The other half were maybe, you know, sympathetic to that cause, but weren't of that community. They're all, they're here also looking for opportunities to better their own lives and their families' lives. Um, so we get a quick, very just that alone speaks to the diversity of experiences that are in Plymouth Colony. And I think, you know, what we see in this book sort of is a little bit of a suggestion and an exploration of those different interests, different backgrounds, that uh, somehow come together and create a new colony, you know? Uh, and it's through that, that's what makes it most interesting, actually, when you think into it, it's that's community building at its core. Um, then to get to the first Thanksgiving, um, sort of, I think one of the things that uh, we first talk about with the, with the first Thanksgiving is the naming of it in, itself, right? <laughs> Everyone wants to ask, like, was the first Thanksgiving the first? And mm-hmm. it depends on how you look at it, okay? So um, it's the first Thanksgiving with a capital T if you consider it being the American holiday, right? It's, it is what is considered the root of the American holiday. So if capital T Thanksgiving, the holiday, uh, they, people over time have pointed back to that moment in the fall of 1621 as the roots of our celebrations as a, as a country. Now, Thanksgiving practices, um, long predate 1621, in all cultures, of course, mm-hmm. uh, every culture has their own practice of giving thanks and showing gratitude for whatever their blessings and bestowed on whatever creator, um, you know, is at that moment in time. For the Reformed Christians, or as we would know them, the Separatists, aka the Pilgrims, um, they had only three holy or holidays that they observed. They had the Sabbath days of Thanksgiving and days of humiliation. And essentially those are the other opposite sides of the coin. Days of Thanksgiving is to give thanks to God for his providence and bestowing all this great stuff that's happening to them. A day of humiliation is a day of prayer and fasting to say, well, things aren't going so great. We need to, you know, have a conversation with God to figure out why things aren't going so great. We need to humble ourselves before God. Mm. Yeah. So that's those are the only holidays that they actually observed, right? Um, Why not so Christmas? It, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that you should celebrate Christmas, uh, wow. according to Reformed Christian. So <laughs> that's fascinating. I feel like yeah. for the rest of you know, I was raised in a Christian church. For the rest of the world, mm-hmm. Christmas is kind of the center of the holy year, mm-hmm. but not in 1620. Oh, yeah, that's right. Neat. So all that is into this makes Thanksgiving a really rich conversation about um, so many different um, experiences and worldviews around practices of gratitude that come together at the culmination of a very, very difficult year 
for um, the, the fledgling English community on the shores of Plymouth, what would become known as Plymouth, and also the indigenous Wamp the Wampanoag people of this region. Um, these are two groups who experienced in, in intense tragedies in the recent years. Um, 1616 to 1619, there is a disease that sweeps through the eastern part of New England that decimates the indigenous population. So then that's the world that the pilgrims are entering into. And as we all know, and we, we see in this book too, in those first few months of Plymouth Colony, half the passengers on Mayflower pass away from yeah. sickness. Mm -hmm. So you have two communities that by the springtime have recently experienced uh, a, you know, a great tragedy. Mm -hmm. So they look out and they reach across and they find allies and partnerships in each other. Usamequin, the Massasoit of the Poconoke Wampanoag, looks to the English as an opportunity to have a partnership. The English are looking to then look to him as an opportunity to have partnership in this new place for them. Mm. And that coming together after difficult periods of time lead to this robust collaboration in that first year that culminates in the first Thanksgiving. So that's another thing when we think about the first Thanksgiving as diplomacy, not just oh. the party, but it's mm -hmm. a diplomatic event of two, uh, um, you know, partners having worked an whole entire year together, coming together. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, as my answers are indicative, it's a complicated and like very nuanced and long-winded story. Um, yeah. You would have to break it apart piece by piece to well, really I mean, get it. Yeah. That's, books are written about this. You know, so right. Yeah. And, but, and back to the book, I, I'm curious to what you thought also. I, I'm sorry to turn this around on you, but like um, <laughs> I found like the Thanksgiving part to be very, very short. And kind mm -hmm. of breeze right through Thanksgiving in this book. If I were to criticize this book in one way, I would say that when you really get to the meat of what you're expecting and anticipating as a reader, this first Thanksgiving, the return of Hummy, um, <laughs> the I was really upset by that. I was like, does Hummy come back? <laughs> and then, um, you know, how, how she adjusts to having a stepmother mm -hmm. um, so soon after the death of her own mother. Uh, and then the book just stops. Like yeah. it was a very abrupt ending, which Jen made a very sound point that the author was not trying to be as tidy and false. That was, yeah, that's my, my hypothesis was that, you know, this is the first book in the series and she's trying to write something that could be interpreted as a real life diary. Like they're not trying to hide it, yeah. you know, like it has her name right on the front. Like they're not pretending yeah. that this 100%. is real, but I think she's trying to write it in a way that feels kind of authentic to uh, how people do write diaries, which is to say mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you write about important events, but you're also writing about, you know, how you feel about the stupid boys on the ship being annoying. <laughs> and you're, <laughs> right. and you're writing about your feelings about your new stepmom. And, and you're like, yeah, we had a Thanksgiving feast for three days. It was great. And then you move on. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, there was like a jigathon and then she was in a coma for three weeks. Oh, yeah. And I was like, okay. So I was also recently in a coma and I was not expecting that that turn i was like oh cool this book is gonna hurt my feelings yeah. um but oh. no it turned out great uh, also my coma turned out great we're all here now <laughs> here we are <laughs> um but no it was just really really surprising and i thought very abrupt um did the narrative style bother you or as an academic historian was that more fitting for you well um she's not the the author is not the first to write in this way with this story in particular um actually as early as like 1869 people are writing sort of 
fictional diaries regarding the pilgrim story so uh i it kind of speaks to like why living history works for this story is people have always sort of tried to connect on a first person basis with this story um and i think for children particularly seeing yourself in this sort of moment of great choice and upheaval in one's life is uh it works in engaging them in imagining what it could have been like, you know, a 10 year old say reading this book will go, Oh wait, Jasper's like 10 years old. Like, and he just kind of crossed the ocean by himself. Like go, wow. I couldn't imagine myself doing that. And that works really well in this style. Um, because you get that sense of choice of personal sacrifice of personal doubt and unsureness of what's going to happen to you that I think it's just very relatable. Um, and it continues adults, it works for adults. It works for, works for kids. Um, there's just something about it that you can connect instantly to. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that's one reason why even as an adult, I'm still kind of drawn to young adult fiction, partially because it's just a, a really easy breezy read. Um, but also because I think as a kid reading those stories, you just, you're filled with this sense of like, oh, I could do that. You know, you know, here's this person going through these really tough times or like doing something really adventurous, you know, and you just have, you, you have this personal connection to them because you're in their head, but then you're also like feeling empowered by, you know, what they can achieve and do. Uh, yeah, and I think that's really neat. I had no idea that they were writing first-person, you know, diaries Fictional back in the eighteen sixties. I really want to read those now. Well, Same also. Uh, I'll, I'll point you to it. It's oh, um, Jane Goodwin Austen is the author, um, and she writes a story series for Harper's Weekly called William Bradford and His Love Life, or something like that. Oh. And it's supposed to be like. Um, Dorothy Bradford's his wife's uh diary and um it it gets heavy because there's a love triangles don't always work out but um it's uh it's it's actually one of those roots for some of the myths that we end up seeing later perpetuated later on is just a fictionalized short story where she imagines that she's somehow she all of a sudden somehow found Dorothy Bradford's long lost Mm -hmm. diary Mm -hmm. and so that cross potato between two a history and fiction and how we're able to sort of separate reality you know from what's you know real history which is always a problem for modern historians i feel like a lot of us you know we were raised on these william longfellow poems that tell certain stories and they're great poems but they're not great history that's right the courtship of miles standish i still deal with that one almost every day you know here at the museum of somebody's imagination still connects back to that poem and that was 1840s. I mean, talk about a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, man. The 18, well, and then in the 1860s, that's when they, you know, made Thanksgiving a national holiday. That's true. Too. So yes. that must have been yeah. kind of tied in with that. Oh. I Definitely. would imagine that a time of great upheaval for different value systems operating in the well, same and, place and would have been very touching during the 1860s. Yeah, and you're reevaluating your national identity. So Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's exactly it. That's exactly wow. it. So there's two major waves there. When the country is founded, creating a national identity as an early republic. So that's why we see 1840s happening. Mm-hmm. And then, yep, post-Civil War, Abraham Lincoln making it a holiday for the very reason of trying to unite the country. And um, and then going it goes from there. Yeah. 
absolutely fascinating and this is a kid's book we're discussing guys like it's so deep this is literally a children's book yeah it's it's wonderful this book series is good (laughs) i was actually i was very impressed this is my first time reading um what did i already ask (laughs) i'm trying to remember what i've already asked um tom what could you tell us generally about the puritans religion sure so um so the the pilgrims as we know them, which again is like a term that comes much later mm-hmm. to describe these people of Plymouth Colony, they were reformed Christians or in their period sort of known as separatists. Now, mm-hmm. separatists are different than Puritans. Gotcha. So and Purit- so if we go back to the root, Church of England, right? Henry VIII's church. The the king and the is the head of the church. Well, uh by the late fifteen hundreds there's a whole group of people called the Puritans who are trying to change that. They want to get a, further away from the Roman Catholic practices and purify the church. So Puritan. But now there's a whole other group of people who are like, yeah, even that's not going to work for us. We want not to <laughs> separate. So separatists, they get tar- uh, named. Um, and that's where the pilgrims fall into. Uh, they were wanted to get back closer to what the bible itself said and so they felt that there was too much pomp and you know having the king as the head of a church they didn't feel was uh right um and so they started doing having religious meetings and discussions sort of in their own houses they weren't attending church of england services which again like you had to attend church of england services right it was compulsory and so yeah and so you have this group now working in secret they start to get found out over time. Uh, and again, the, the group that's known as the Pilgrims aren't the only people in England doing this. Okay. Um, they're just a, a a strong a stronghold, maybe in a way, of, of a community that comes together. So they try to flee and they find refuge in Holland for 11 years, living in the city of Leiden. Uh, Holland at that time is tolerant to other religious practices, mm-hmm. but um so this is sort of the history of how these people are moving about all because they are challenging the king's church and um it's it's uh it's not like uh i mean it's seriously you know life or death or imprisonment is you know the punishment for some mm-hmm. of their uh, attempts to do things so it's um definitely a different time uh and uh it's all these are people who are just passionate about getting back to the like the source of the bible and the original intention or how they interpret the original intention um they're eventually able to get to america in part because king james allows them to go certainly so that's another sort of part of the story is people tax the pilgrims to like America, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. separate from England. Yay. You know, mm-hmm. although obviously it doesn't happen until 150 years later. Um, King James gives them permission to go partly because he's like, yes, you, you should go. You're, you know, annoying me here. Go <laughs> over there. Um, if you could casually GTFO, under, that'd be great. Yeah, underrated like, motive. Yeah, please go. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no. Going over there. Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> But uh, that allows them to set up their own church here. And the the church ends up becoming sort of the basis for the community still. And 
there is that coming together of, of the different backgrounds that still kind of come around the idea of the reformed Christian church. It still kind of comes to predominant, um, uh, religious observations in the colony mm-hmm. in the early years. Um, so, uh, some would say that the closest, like, um, uh, comparative today would be like the congregational church, um, as sort of, and some of their histories sort of stretch back to the pilgrim reform Christian, um, no direct parallel today, of course, but in some of the practices, perhaps some are seen as perhaps that's one of the more, more, uh, similar ones. If you needed a modern comparative, I have never heard of that church. So are you from new England? Oh no, no! I I grew up in Western New York State, so we're okay. we're thoroughly and and Kate grew up in Michigan. I'm aggressively Midwest. We are. We... Okay. <laughs> so. Actually, the whole time you've been discussing this, uh, West Michigan is a home of sorts mm. uh, for a very very large, robust, and we had a different separatist movement. Yeah. Uh, the... So like uh, we were, uh, this area was mostly founded by Dutch separatists. Um, in the 1840s. So it was kind of like an interesting parallel where it was like people coming who had, you know, thought that the Netherlands was probably a little too tolerant. Um, and yeah. so they're like... Um, and then know. they came to the Midwest to be Midwest nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah a different reformed church. Uh, so that that's right. what I was thinking when you were saying that the, they were reformers. I was like, hmm, yes, reformers. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Familiar. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, okay, this is something that um that that I hinted at like so they kind of they didn't really talk about much in the book about why they left Holland and I've heard various times that it was because Holland was a little too tolerant so it was is it yeah. is that true it was like kind of like a, we want to be separate from the church of England we want religious freedom but mm, this place is a little too mm, it'd be dippy a little too dutch <laughs> I uh, no, that's exactly one of the reasons. So they actually they state like uh, I think it's about five or six reasons for actually wanting to go and uh, leave to go to um, anywhere actually at that point, but to find a new place to live. So first was religion, of course. Um, second was like economics. So while they're living in Holland, they're all sort of taking up industrial trades. They're printers. They're weavers working in the textile factories uh, life is very hard for them so even just for economic reasons yes they're interested in finding a new place to live and have a better life uh they're also afraid that their kids now because they've been there for 11 years so their children are born and raised in leiden not in england they're afraid they're becoming too dutch mm. and well, they're you would never their- want that I, I, yeah, uh, it's again. Oh, yeah. So they, uh, so that's their fear. They're like they're not lo- they're not they're losing their English culture, and mm-hmm. so they want to be English people, but they don't want to be in England because they can't because they'll they'll be persecuted. Right. They were um, discussing in the book uh, some of the tortures that uh, King James put upon separatists, Puritans, what have you, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the mother decided that that was a little too graphic because he was discussing people yeah. being drawn and quartered. I, that was an interesting passage. You're just like, mm, please don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of examples. Um, and then the last sort of part too, about like even Dutch, the tolerance of Holland is in part also by 1620, there's that it's, they're actually in this period of a truce between Spain and Dutch uh, in the Holland, sorry. And um, uh, so you, after, what was it, the 30 years war or, yes. um, you know, so you, so you have this period of, of 
there, you know, Holland is in Protestant Holland is in control. But now there's a fear that 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 period of truce is actually running out. And so there's a fear amongst the English that the Catholic Spain will be coming back in. And so that is probably worse for them than going back to England. Um, And so there's another that's also that tension is sort of building behind the scenes of them. of They just don't know what's going to happen in the next year or two. Uh, And so another reason for them to want to get out now. Wow. That's yeah, it's it's really like a global well, European <laughs> I suppose <laughs> conflict. But there was a great deal of political conflict that yeah. was motivating this, not just not just religious conflict where they want to be where they can worship freely, but like they were also from according to Nathaniel Philbrick and Sarah Vowell, <laughs> uh, I'll swear, I'll cite my sources, they were afraid that their children would be Dutch soldiers specifically, mm. that they'd get embroiled yeah. in this war and be foot soldiers for the Dutch. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was so interesting because um, mm-hmm. it's not something we really have to think about much. Oh, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, do you have any more topical? Because I want to, I want to transition to, I want to end with a conversation more broadly about writing historical fiction. But if there's any more, well, actually, I'd like to ask. Okay. Um, yeah. Since children's fiction specifically is is one of your interests, um, one of the things that we always try to do is build a spreadsheet of recommended books. Mm. So if you have any books that you could recommend us uh, that we could add to the spreadsheet, we would love to hear them. Sure. Uh... I can send that to you also, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're fantastic. Thank you so kindly. You can't just rattle them off off the top. I can can probably give you some names or close to titles, (laughs) or I won't be able to approximate some of the author's names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, and we could talk more about with the historical fiction of why I think some of these are the better books. But one of the most recent ones that comes to mind is actually a book called um, uh, Kipunamuk. Uh, it's a it is written by indigenous authors. It's like a indigenous telling of Thanksgiving, mm. and um, it's very nicely illustrated. Um, and it's a it's a great new addition to sort of uh, uh, to the library shelves. I think of of kids books around thinking about the holiday and the time of year in general. Um, there are a few throughout time. One that actually stands out to me, and it's kind of a funny one, but it's. Um, Oh, again, I have to give you the title. I Now I'm blanking I'm on so it. I'm so sorry. I put you right on the spot. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I'll give you a synopsis. So it's these two kids who travel back in time with their grandmother. And I guess this is sort of like a series of, I think it's a scholastic, you know, paperback book. Um, and they go back in time and they see the first Thanksgiving. And the book was done, clearly done in, in great conversation with Plymouth Patuxent Museum's historians at the time. Um, and so for that, I know the source material, the sources were, were good. And um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting, engaging, they, it, it gets into some of the more nuanced pieces while also still being a fun uh, kids book um, about kids and their grandmother going back in time. That the idea of just time traveling with your grandma is so charming. I love yeah. it so much. And yeah. I think um, with the the other book that you mentioned, that, that would be a really good, I think, companion piece to this book. Because I think um, at one of the things I want to talk about is... You know, this book is written, uh, you know, Journey to the New World is written as a first person diary. And so, like, obviously, they wanted to have some level of accuracy as to her point of view and her worldview. But at the end of the day, you know, you're getting 
you know, a separatist point of view. You're not, you're, and you're getting her opinion of, uh, you know, the indigenous people and, you know, what they're like. And, and she writes about it in a way that's like, you know, curious and, uh, friendly and not like, but she also is writing about like, oh, we're scared of being murdered by them. And so, yeah, I think it would be really good to have that kind of other side companion piece to that. So yeah, book recommendation. and I, th- I think it's in this series, right? Later on, there's the Abashanks, I think it is, or... Um, I, I don't have an encyclopedic not- m- memory yeah, of th- every single book in this series, I but can't, that wouldn't surprise me. I can't remember either, but yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think it comes later, um, a book written from Abashanks, who's mm. Wampanoags, uh, from the later 17th century, uh, from her perspective in the oh, same good. sort of style. Cool. Um, so you get... You get that too, which I think is a, is also a good sort of one. It gives you a what happens later in the 17th century, but it also gives you, you know, an indigenous sort of perspective on the mm. history, or That's at least indigenous voice. I don't know how she wrote the book or not. But. Yeah, yeah, I know there is a pairing where there's like a a civil war book from a southern white girl, and then I think an enslaved you know African American girl. I think that one like was published almost directly afterwards. So like they, yeah, I can tell that they were thinking a little bit about like, "Mm, maybe we should. (laughs) Well, and some of those narrative voices will just simply beg the question. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're at, they're writing very likable character, uh, first person characters, and you see them inherently sympathetically, even though we know from a political standpoint throughout this book, um, the book that we're discussing today, Journey to a New World, I wrote, girl, you're in a cult so many times. <laughs> and I'm very analog. I write right on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, she's talking about how, you know, water is so bad for us. Oh, and oh, I, I was like, so call your dad, you're in a cult. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and okay. So oh, one topic that's been very in the zeitgeist recently is, you know, critical race theory rolling out the six dollar words yeah yeah so but i think i think that can tie into this conversation like as as someone who does history professionally as you do and and are working with um a topic that can be sometimes a little racially sensitive um uh, what are your thoughts on writing you know historical fiction from you know an established point of view like a first person point of view and like writing for children and kind of touching on these more sensitive topics in a way that is like age appropriate, but still historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first hardest part I find, and I've read several drafts of people's books and self-published whatnot. Um, and, and I've been able to work on a few children's books project as a museum consultant. Um, the hardest part I think is that kind of dark history in the sense that you're talking about uh 50% of a ship dying in a few mm-hmm. months how do you talk to or in upwards of 75% of an indigenous population dying in about 3 years span right. how do you talk about that level of of death in to third graders you know or younger and and the the trickiest thing is it's such a big part of the story and the reason things happen is because of that background um 
So one of the things that I think we we try to do is we, we try to find those ways. There was a, I'll also share this with you because I think the both of you will be very interested in it. There was a study done in the early 2000s by, um, uh, I think they were, um, they were, you know, educators really, not historians, but um, looking at how books were handling these topics for certain age groups. Did they mention it or did they leave it out? Did they mention it? Did they really jump into it? And they sort of rated these scales for books in the late 90s, early 2000s, all dealing with the period we're talking about in Plymouth Colony. And so you kind of get to see like how difficult it is for writers to engage with this um, really difficult thing for young people um, and if it's effective or not. Well, it's easy to do when you talk with somebody, I feel like, you know, when I, you can read it, when I talk with a kid on one of the living history sites, you can kind of judge what they're comfortable with and where they're coming from. And you put it out there in the book printed form, you never quite know how it could be received or how someone might, um, you know, it might affect them. That's certainly um, true. I don't think the author expected me to have this like coma response. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's a, it's a really, really tricky line. And I can understand why some authors don't touch on it at all, or they find it hard to do. I, I, books have gotten a lot better since that study in the early 2000s about finding that sort of middle ground and um, being able to figure out how to talk about it, how to address it, but also then how to get to the, you know, the more engaging and probably more, uh, connecting points with, with school, with school, school kids. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the other sort of thing that I think I, I sort of is a red flag when I mm -hmm. read books, um, for, for a children audience, but also for an adult audience too, I guess any nonfiction, any fictional book about this period is how are they portraying the first person of the indigenous players in the story? Um, because you will see instances where, uh, for some reason, the 17th century English person is talking with a 2022 voice, mm -hmm. but the native person is somehow all of a sudden speaking in broken English. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's like, I'm not helping you with this book. I'm sorry. You have to address this on your own. You have to talk, you know, figure that out. Because mm -hmm. if we were, they were to be authentic, say, right, they're trying to be like, it's a 17th century voice. Well, the English words would be all jumbled up by our context as well. They're not speaking the same language we're speaking. Mm -hmm. So why not write in dialect for them as well? Um, for example, in in the book that we're reading, uh, to address adults, uh, Mem calls them upgrowns instead of grownups. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's that sort of thing of like, you know, sort of finding... Um, like either do it or don't right sort mm -hmm. of thing too and so um one that's one of the biggest things is how are indigenous people being portrayed in the story did an author work with members of an indigenous nation and in, that is relevant that are specific to the topic being covered so you know for this period did they talk with uh wampanoag people um in the in the communities about the history and about how to portray people. If that's absent from that, um, then 
that's where you get into problematic portrayals or perpetuating problematic portrayals. It's for a little alliteration there. Um, <laughs> but um, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's a, uh, it's, those are some of the questions you have to ask people when you think about what source material is, especially with a topic of Plymouth colony and going to your question about CRT, like mm-hmm. having this sense of, uh, you know, how to, it's a, it's a story that's been so wrapped up in problematic portrayals over time and how, so how do we going forward for a young reader readership? How do we go forward in improving that for them so that they're better situated as an adult than maybe even I was, you know, um, and can start from a young age of understanding sort of the multicultural aspect of a story. I'm always amazed by how much children can just take on face value, absorb a fact and move on. Uh, the ability that that plastic brain, mm. you know, they can just be like, oh, yeah, okay, that's not the way it was. Cool. Got it. Move yeah. on. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we need to give kids a lot of credit for the way that they can absorb complex information and kind of, yeah, exactly. Just absorb it and just like add that to their level of knowledge. It's incredibly it, graceful. Yeah, because mm-hmm. honestly, it's so much better than, you know, the way we've done it for, you know, ever essentially is just really you know whitewash it or dumb it down and which i understand the the idea behind that but then that just creates this uh distrust and tension as they get older and you you take you know more advanced history classes Mm -hmm. and then suddenly they're saying oh everything that you learned you know, when you were this age is not true. That <laughs> you book know? lies my teacher told me. Yeah, right. yeah. So, well, thinking, yeah. And I, I have some of my best conversations at this museum have been with third graders. And it's because of that aspect of that age group. They're, they're still, everything is still pretty new and they want to know everything. Yes. Um, I was, I was just happened to be helping on the historic protects at home site one time. And then we had a bear fur out just sort of as a, uh, as a piece there to talk about these kids had never seen uh any anywhere close to like a full bear fur you know in, in their lives and just the like spark questioning what's it used for why is it here uh is very different from third grade than it is from seventh grade mm. and so it's it, it, things happen a lot within those age groups or for the type of questions you're asking and what you're receptive to and i think when we look back right how do i know what do i know about a certain historical topic i i'm willing to bet that almost all of us still have some base knowledge in our back of our mind from our elementary and early middle school history classes like we may not even realize it, right? But to your point about like absorbing these things and moving on, that we we still operate. I may not go to the revolution period a lot in my personal studies, but I there's somehow I find like, oh wait, how do I know that? I haven't read a book on this since what? Oh yeah, that's right. It was like seventh grade. And so being able to have that conversation with yourself also about like, how do, how do you know the things you know? It's because you absorbed it at somewhere along the line. Isn't that remarkable? Mm-hmm. I, sorry, I, I used to be a museum educator, and this conversation is making me miss my kids so bad. <laughs> it's making me almost wish I worked with kids. <laughs> sorry, I work at a university, and I'm, I, and before that I was in a... I was in a curatorial like exhibits role, so I was very much like the on the boring side. Do the the talking with the kids, and I do the behind the scenes. You yeah. file the papers. Thanks for that. 
Oh, now I'm sad. Oh, I'll be all right. Well, okay. Do you have any other like really fun like kid stories that you can <laughs> tell us? Or if you don't, that's fine. We can just cut this out. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, again, like I go back to like third graders and stuff. Mm-hmm. Though here, it's um, I mean, on a busy field trip day, we will have more than a thousand kids visiting. Um, and so, uh, occasionally, so obviously I don't work on the sites in my day to day job, but on those sort of days, we try to go down and we just help out for like traffic control. That's great. That's it, very kind. And, no, it's just doing what we can. Uh, yeah. The people down on the sites are the ones who deal with it every day, but, God bless them. um, the, these are waves, quite literally waves of children who are coming down. They see an open space. And it's just, you know, let's yeah. take off and run, right? And there's something daunting by some, for some people, but also something super exciting about that, you know, from mm-hmm. an educator standpoint, because um, if you can wrangle them for a second, you have a captive audience who wants to learn. Mm-hmm. And so it usually ends up being quite productive. And I see thank you cards from schools that visit and because the kids will send a thank you card and they say it'd be so simple as you know hey the mm. the pilgrims in the english village were really cool it really made yeah. my day and it's like you don't really you see that connection with whatever ki- level of kids so it's like it's super fun and um for me that's why i end up liking mm. public history why yeah. i like the museum world uh i just like to see like that kind of that's why kids books, right? Why your podcast is so interesting is yeah. because this is how people connect with the story. Mm-hmm. I always tell people like, um, if you're not Nathaniel Philbrick or Sarah Val, where you have a huge readership, God bless um, them both. <laughs> you have, if you're an academic historian who are sort of is helping us in the field, you know, it's the public histor- history's role to take that information and translate it for a third grader. Mm. Uh, translate it for a lifelong learner. Um, And so that's where like this amazing impact that any sort of museum space can have is engaging with people on a personal level. And so that people don't necessarily have to read that 400 page treatise about, you know, something very specific and nuanced. I'll do that for you. And then we'll we'll have a good, we'll have a good conversation about it. Then we can put it down into cards that are written for sixth, seventh grade and Mm -hmm. they can just read it as they pass. Uh, But that information stays so gracefully. And that is why museums are so important and should be publicly funded. What up? Vote for that guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Sorry, I'll step off my... We're we're really going to wax poetic about the beauty and glory of museums because we are both lifelong museum people. Oh, I'm software now, baby. I'm getting paid. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. Oh, well, you know, there is that aspect. (laughs) I'm going to have a lake house someday, so I left left museums. Who needs that? Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, no, museums, uh, I think... Uh, along with historical fiction, I think, are just some of the most accessible forms of learning. And I I will defend them until the day I die. I love them so much. Absolutely. Accessible and engaging. Mm-hmm. Right. There are so many different kinds of learners. And most people, generally, we have evolved 
as I understand, this is, I'm outside my scope of practice here, uh, but we have evolved to learn visually and in an environment. Mm. So living history, Jen feels less I, passionate no, about no, living no. history I, than no, I no, do. No, 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 I don't want, I don't want to miss it. I love okay. living history because I love playing dress up. I want to be immersed. I want to be in there. I love it. I have deep social anxiety. So that's a that's a thing I have to deal with. But I do not want you to misunderstand. I love living I appreciate your clarity there. I thought you were... T- a lot of museum people are team don't put me in a costume. Oh, I'm... Put me in a costume. Do you know how many costumes time. I have? Let's oh, roll, baby. Oh, please, please. It's my, it's my, one of my deep regrets that I never was like at that perfect age where I needed a seasonal like living history museum job. I would have loved yeah. it. So it's never too late. <laughs> I've I've never actually like been a pilgrim. So uh, that's oh. always the first thing when you tie it, when kind of tell somebody you work at this museum. It's mm-hmm. I work at Plymouth Tux Museums. I'm not a pilgrim. Yes, and, uh, but you should be like for just part, a day, if for that. no other reason to the well, field of pants. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been in a few uh, I've been in a few photo shoots and stuff like oh, that good. for marketing reasons. Yes. But you know, I when they, they need that. a they need a backup, you know, pilgrim number five or whatever to stand in the background. <laughs> but um, yeah. hit me with a butter churn I gotta, all day every day. I gotta say though, like the the immediately after leaving Plymouth um, for the first time as a visitor, I was like what does it take to work here? Because I want to do it. And I looked up like what the application process was. I know. And I was like, okay. Like they had like this really intense process because, you know, they have to learn so much, um, you know, because you can ask them anything and they, you know, can't break characters. I was like, okay, what does it take? So, yeah. I find that very charming. (laughs) I hope that you get to do it someday. Live your dreams. And now I play D&D, so... (laughs) Uh, that's the there, you, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. is there anything else? I think I think that's kind of all the questions we had written. Um, but yeah. I would love to give you an opportunity to talk about anything that we missed, anything that you projects would... that you'd like to send out to people to for support. Uh, anything. Sure. Well, uh, if people have not visited or experienced Plymouth Patuxent Museums virtually, uh, there are plenty opportunities to. Learn more about us at www.plymouth.org. And uh, that's uh, at our website. You know, we can learn all about everything that we do on a daily basis, get more of the resources about the history that I've referred to. Um, check out one of our really great interactive games uh, called You Are the Historian, Investigating the First Thanksgiving. This is a like role-playing style game that kids, third grader audience in particular, but for all oh, ages, okay. can okay, sort you. of engage in the you history. You can still play Jen. Thank you. Thank oh, yeah. You. yeah well, okay. you know, I you, will be next, playing. Next, you said Jen's next... keyword, which is role-play, so... Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I heard about you know, D&D there, so yeah, I yeah. had a sense I'm, I'm a theater nerd. The right nerd. audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, they can learn more about us online. Um, we have offerings throughout the year. Um, I, we know that um, not everybody can get to Plymouth, Massachusetts all the time. Uh, so we have plenty of virtual offerings and ways to engage from wherever you might be. That's very exciting. And I especially appreciate virtual offerings because travel is very difficult for me right now. Mm. Uh, so I'm very excited to check out your website. I'll make sure that we post it to our socials. Yes, yes. And when I say I, I'm casually reminding Jen to post it to our socials. I will definitely do that. Yeah, um, sure. That way Thank people you. can engage on that <laughs> level. Uh, so that should be really fun. Uh, I really do hope to get out there someday. I've mm-hmm. never done New England. Oh, you got oh, yeah. it. It oh, seems yeah. nice. 
And I really yeah, people like it. <laughs> people like it. It's it's fine. <laughs> I want to see a whale. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These are my goals. Right out of Plymouth. Man, right out of Plymouth. Yep. Mm, Perfect. Well, we are coming up on the end of our hour. Yeah. Um, cool. And I don't want to take up too much more time of your professional life. Like I'm just screwing around today. Yeah. But um, thank you for all your help yeah. today, um, and thank you for consenting to talk with us. Uh, this has been. I think really fun. This has been a pure delight, and I'm so oh, so great. grateful to you for agreeing to be on our show. I, I appreciate I'm the dress opportunity. Up next it's, time, it's, like an adult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast. It's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So uh, we can we can kind of like formally cut off there. Yeah. Everybody, uh, thanks for listening. This has been Tom Begley of the Plymouth Patuxent Museum, curator of. Director of Collections and Special Projects. Thank you. I memorized it. (laughs) Good job internalizing. Uh, I'm Kate Reed. And I'm Jen Voss, and we're signing off. This has been the Ribbon Book Club. Keep reading. Hey, thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Erica Page for creating our amazing intro and outro music, Callie Charing for being the best research librarian we know, and the world's best editor, Danny Heck. Feel free to reach out to them with contact info in the description.